If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn once again this week to Acts chapter 13. Look at the same passage that we looked at last week as we continue our focus on missions and get ready to send this team out to Uganda. You know, missions is often very costly, and not just from a financial point of view. On one of our trips to Uganda several years ago, one of our team members was troubled for the entirety of the trip. Very fearful, haunted actually by all that we saw while we were there in Uganda. The suffering, the poverty, haunted by the stories we heard from the people of the destruction and the slaughter that they had experienced in the area where we were ministering. And so this team member began to doubt the goodness of God. And as we got back from that trip, the team member began to also doubt the existence of God and began to read books that would support that particular point of view, in particular Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, and Richard Dawkins' God Delusion. And as a result, this member of our Uganda team denied the faith and left the church. Now, this is not one of those stories where at the end I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. That's the end of the story so far. This person is still alive, and so God is still writing that story. Missions comes at a cost. When you and I put ourselves out there to do incarnational ministry, as we talked about last week, living in and among our friends and neighbors and co-workers, sharing with them the love and the gospel of Christ, when we're involved in ministry and missions halfway around the world, it will cost us something. The story I just told is one cost, and it is a tragic cost. But there are many other costs as well, and so we need to be honest about the reality of the cost, and we need to question what we are about as individuals and what we are about as a church If in sharing our faith, it never costs us anything. If it always comes to us at no expense. You know, there's also great joy as well. I told you a little bit of the joy last week. As our team years ago went into that camp for displaced persons, that that horrific camp. And we brought hope to them. and, And it was a time of great joy. We've experienced the joy of seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, literally, of school High schoolers respond in faith to the call of the gospel. It's a joyful time, but the cost comes first. And that's what I want us to look at this morning as we come again to Acts chapter 13. So that we can evaluate our lives, see where the cost is, see if we're willing to pay that cost. But secondly and selfishly, I I hope that it will inspire you all to really pray for us as we head out at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. So let's pray together as we come to the word of the Lord. Father, we do ask now that you would, as you promise, add your blessing to uh, the reading of your word as it's read, as we hear it. Father, may your spirit join your word, and may power be there, may transformation be there. Father, we pray that your word would go deep into our hearts, examine us, uh, reveal to us what we need to know about you, what we need to know about ourselves and how we need to change our lives through the power of your Spirit and your Word. So we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible open to Acts chapter 13, I'm going to read once again the first four verses. This is the Word of the Lord. 
Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Barnabas and Saul must have been as amazed as everyone else during that time of worship to be called out by the Holy Spirit of God to go on this trip. Scripture is silent concerning how Barnabas and Saul felt about that call, whether they were excited about it, whether they were fearful, whether they were disappointed, we don't know. But we do know this, at the time this call came to them, both of them were involved in a very exciting ministry there in Antioch. People were coming to faith. Acts chapter 11 tells us that they were teaching the people in great numbers. And so what a perfect situation for a scholar like Saul, later called Paul, to be teaching all these people. So we can't assume that it was easy for them to receive this call. And I'm confident that the two of them could have come up with a pretty long list with a lot of spiritual reasons why they should not go on this trip. Well, what about Joe? What about Sue? They're so close. They're so close to believing in the gospel. Or, or man, they're just really plowing ahead in their discipleship. Lord, this is not the time to go. They could have come up with a list like that. These two men had to weigh the cost of obedience. Now we think, oh, how easy. How easy to choose to obey when you hear the Holy Spirit speak as they heard the Holy Spirit speak. It'd be easy, right? Do we really want to go there? You know, if we claim that clear direction makes it easy to obey, then we have to ask ourselves, how are you doing with that? One verse will serve as an illustration, and it's not always to obey what's clearly directed and asked of us. Micah 6, 8. He has told you. He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? How are you doing with that? How easy is that for you to do every day? A clear call doesn't equal easy obedience. Nor does it mean that obedience comes at no cost. It had to be daunting for these two men, and maybe a bit scary as well, boarding that ship and setting off on this unknown adventure, standing on the deck of that ship, looking out the expanse of water before them, not knowing what was in store for them as they took the gospel to a place it had never, ever been before. Nothing was in place for them on the other side. There were not going to be any Christians there to greet them when they got off the boat because there were no Christians to greet them. There wasn't going to be a chauffeur standing on the dock with a sign, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. No advanced publicity. No newspaper headlines. Famous evangelists arrive. Revival starts tonight. None of that. What were they supposed to do? The trip was definitely an uncertain venture, but in spite of that, in spite of any personal preference or wish or want they may have had in their hearts, Barnabas and Paul obey the call of the Spirit. 
Let's see what happened as they arrived at their first stop. This is chapter 13, verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So Paul and Barnabas arrive and they proclaim the good news in the Jewish synagogue at Salamis. That's all that we know about what happened there. We don't have any more details. We don't know what the result of that particular sharing of the word was. Then we are told that they travel throughout the whole island. And again, we're given no more details. We assume they taught the word of the Lord along the way, but we don't know that. We don't know if people came to faith or not until we get to Paphos. Apparently, this was the last stop on the island. They had been everywhere else. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses that this will be the first event from the first missions trip ever that he is going to report in any detail. And look with me at what kind of report it is. The first detailed report from the first ever missions trip is the report about a battle. The report about a battle, look in verse 8. The false prophet, Elimus, it says, opposed them. And the verb opposed here is in the imperfect uh, tense, and so that means that the opposition was ongoing. It was this continual opposition. They would preach, they would teach, this man would oppose. As the word of God goes out, there's opposition. We need to look here. And see what the nature of that opposition is, what it can look like. Because opposition, when it comes, is always inspired by the kingdom of darkness. Only the darkness doesn't always look like darkness. It doesn't always look like what we would see on The Exorcist or or Poltergeist or this horrible looking movie. I saw the ads for Deliver Us From Evil. Don't go see that. (laughs) Scripture says that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. In this passage, the false prophet calls himself Bar-Jesus. Now, we, we know that he is a Jew, and he adopts for himself a name which in Hebrew means Joshua, Yeshua, salvation. And so this man is walking around saying, oh, I'm Elimus, I am the son of salvation, indicating that through him and through what he was teaching and doing, people could find the way of salvation. As long as he could mix enough God's stuff With his magic tricks and his sorcery, people might be deceived into believing that he knew the path to salvation. Apparently, he was a talented man, talented enough for Sergius Paulus, the equivalent of the governor, to to call him, to keep him around, to use him as an advisor. And and verse 7 says that the governor was an intelligent man. So, enter Paul and Barnabas preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and salvation through him alone. Sergius Paulus hears that they are there in Paphos, and so he invites them to come. And so God has worked it out for these men to arrive on this island and go straight to the top, straight to the main guy. God said it would be that way. 
When Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, God said, you are my chosen instrument. You are going to carry my name to the Gentiles and to their kings. Now, do this. Hit pause for just a minute. Pause. Because I just want to tell you this opportunity that we have. So we're, we're pausing now. So, you know, we're leaving for Africa. And the LC5 in Shema, the area that we're going, the equivalent of their government governor has found out that our team is coming. So when we arrive, the governor is going to be there, along with the presidential appointee to that area and all the dignitaries, and they are going to receive us, and they're going to make speeches. And so I've gotten a, a note from our uh, mayor. Uh, mayor Riley has written a note, and he sent some books and autographed them to send as gifts. And we're going to have an opportunity in that moment to tell why we have come to Uganda. So we're, we're landing there, we're getting on the ground, and we're going straight to the top, politically speaking. So I want you to pray for that. Will you all pray for that? What an opportunity. God worked that out. We didn't ask for it. They found out we're coming. Say, hey, we're going to greet you. So there we go, straight to the top. Now, hit play, because we're back. You ready? The governor sends for Paul and Barnabas because he wants to hear the word of God. Well, Bar-Jesus knew that he was in trouble because he knew he was a liar. He knew he was a fake. And their truth threatened to expose his lies. And so verse 8 tells us that he tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, my mind wonders why this is. Why is this first ever mission, mission trip turning out this way with opposition? Is God showing us something? From the very beginning, does the Holy Spirit want us to know that as it began, so it has always and will always be? And if so, why must it be this way? Opposition. Passages like this make it easy for us to take sides. Not Paul and Barnabas against this sorcerer, but rather Paul and Barnabas against God. Why would God allow this opposition to their ministry? One chapter over, chapter 14, Paul's going to be beaten and stoned and left for dead. Why doesn't God just allow two or three or ten piece of cake presentations of the gospel where lots of people come to faith? Why doesn't God allow that there be two or three or ten really easy church plants just so Paul and Barnabas can get their feet wet in evangelism, in church planting. You've got to grapple with why God allows that. But we also have to grapple with why we think it should be other than that. If you think that God should make it smooth sailing for those who commit themselves to be very intentional in incarnational ministry, to those who commit themselves to, to go into uh, missions, Why do we think it should be that way? Easy. See, answering this question will make us think about our view of ourselves. What we think we're entitled to. What we think we deserve from God. It'll make us think about our view of God. It'll make us think about our view of the nature of the gospel. And what happens when the gospel goes out. These are great questions to answer. Together. You know, in your community group, you wrestle with these questions. Because I think the answers to them are what make us real. Makes us authentic, that we think and wrestle through these issues. 
But let's get back to the story. And let's look at how Barnabas and Paul respond to the opposition. This is in verse 9 and 10. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Sometimes don't you just hate how Paul beats around the bush? (laughs) Why can't he be more direct? Not? Wow, look how direct Paul is here. And we may not want to adopt this approach with all people, but at least sometimes, maybe you and I should be a little more direct with people when we're speaking the truth, particularly those who are standing in opposition to the gospel. Anyway, that's the nature of the gospel. As it confronts the darkness, the truth of it, confronts the lies, and there is a battle. There's a battle, always a battle. And yet our comfort and our hope and our motivation to keep going, to keep pressing on, comes from knowing that God is still a seeking and saving God, and he will not be frustrated. His plan will never be frustrated by those who oppose him. No one will ultimately be able to pervert his path. His mission will not be stopped. God has straight paths. And God is still pursuing. God is still sending his church. That's you and me as he sent his son on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And that's good news for us. There is victory filled with the Holy Spirit We speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we trust God with the results. That may not come easy and most often it may come to us at quite a cost. But you and I have got to be willing to take the risk as Barnabas and Paul were willing to take the risk. And with the boldness and the strength that came to these men through the power of the Holy Spirit, overcome our fears, speak the truth, take the risk. And that's what I want us to consider lastly this morning. Speaking the truth. You know, the word of God, this right here is truth. This is truth. And when the spirit of God joins the word of God, boom, you know, there's power there. The spirit of God and the word of God, there's power. And transformation takes place. And you and I have to believe that. If we don't believe that, we're never going to open our mouths and we're never going to speak the truth and we're never going to share the gospel. But that's what we're called to do. I want us to see the power of the word. But first, I want to tell you another quick story. Because this story is great. It's from the Old Testament. It's one of my favorites because it's such a picture of who we are in America in 2014. This particular story is from 1 Kings chapter 22. There's a king, the king of Israel. His name is Ahab. And he wanted to go to war against a king named Aram. And so Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom. And so he calls on Jehoshaphat, the good king Jehoshaphat from Judah. And he says, hey, go to war with me against this guy. So Jehoshaphat says, okay, I will go to war with you. But first, can we inquire of the Lord? So Ahab says, all right. And he brought 400 prophets together and all 400 said, go into this battle. For the Lord will give it into the king's hands. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord 
a prophet of the Lord here who we can inquire of. Now, Ahab's response is what really reveals the heart of man toward the truth. So Ahab says, well, there is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. His name is Micaiah. See, I don't, want to, I don't want to hear anything bad. Don't tell me anything bad about myself. And don't tell me uh, that I can't do what I want to do, what I'm entitled to do. Now, does that sound familiar? Please say it does. That's every one of us. No picture could be more relevant for our culture. So they call on this guy, Micaiah the prophet. And he says, the Lord has decreed disaster for you. And Ahab looks at Jehoshaphat and says, didn't I tell you? He never says anything good about me. He always prophesies bad about me. So Ahab ignores him, throws his prophet in jail with only bread and water, and he does what the 400 prophets say, and guess what? Ahab is killed in battle. That's the end of the story. The real temptation for us, as we move out into mission and into incarnational ministry with people who don't know Christ will be to take the easy way out and to avoid the conflict or these encounters altogether. It's so much easier to tell people what we think they want to hear. So much easier never to say anything bad about anyone else, but, 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 but just to tell them what they want to hear, to tickle their ears. But if you and I do that, you and I are no better than the sorcerer uh, Elimus Bar-Jesus, who, by not telling the people the truth, was making the straight path of the Lord crooked. And the results are disastrous. As they were for Ahab, they're disastrous for all eternity. When we move out as a church into incarnational ministry, into international mission, we've got to fight against the same subtle but very real temptation to tell people only what they want to hear. What will make them happy? Tell them stuff so that they will never feel bad about themselves. Instead, we've got to tell them the truth. Speak the truth in love. Not because we say it's true. Not because what we tell them is our opinion that it's true, but because God says this is true. And if we fail to tell them that there is only one way to God, and that way is through faith in Jesus Christ... If we hold out any other hope for any other way to God than Christ, then we will be false prophets. And the eternal consequences will be devastating. No matter how difficult it may be to live in this politically correct world, and you know what? Almost all of you in here don't even know America before it was politically correct. You're too young. It's been around so long. In this age of tolerance, I mean, that's the greatest sin you can commit in America now, isn't it? Is that being intolerant? We would rather wear a scarlet A than a scarlet I and be called intolerant. That's the way of our culture. But you and I are called to speak the truth and love. And this passage gives us the confidence to do that. Look with me in verses 11 and 12, particularly verse 12. It says, when the proconsuls saw what had happened that this man was struck blind, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, please notice this. Sergius was amazed. No surprise there. He had just seen this miracle. This man was struck blind and was groping his way around. 
But is the miracle what amazed him? Look at the text. What does the text say? Sergius Paulus was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. See, it's the word of God, the teaching of Christ that turned him to faith. And that's good news for us because I don't know about you, but it's been a little while since I performed a miracle. (laughs) You know, okay, never. I can't do them. But I can certainly, and you can certainly tell people about the Lord, Christ, who is the amazing one. Paul must have seen this happen over and over and over again in his ministry. Because he writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. How many people had he seen come to faith as he presented the glory and the splendor of Christ? And so here's the victory. Here's the victory. Sergius Paulus came to faith in Christ. The opposition of Elimus crumbled in defeat. That's the victory. And if you were here last week, when we looked at this same passage, you heard the story. How the brilliant, highly honored, highly awarded scholar, Sir William Ramsey, in the early part of the 20th century, as a result of his archaeological digs, discovered that Sergius Paulus was a real man, that he was the governor, just as Luke says, that he came to faith in Christ, that his whole family came to faith in Christ, and that they were prominent in the church that was planted as a result of this mission trip. That's true victory. But first... First came the call to obedience. The call to obedience to mission. Then came the opposition. Then came the battle. And then came the victory. Obeying the call. Then the opposition. Then the battle. Then the victory. Can there really be victory without a battle? Can there be? How would we even know a victory apart from a battle? Can there be truly effective life-transforming, incarnational ministry at no cost to us. Look at the table. The table answers the question. No, it cannot be. This kind of ministry comes with a battle. And the battle comes with a great cost. And Jesus was willing to obey the call to mission to come to earth. He was willing to fight the battle through the course of his life. He was willing to pay the price as he hung on the cross, giving his life for you and for me. Then what happened? Then he experienced the victory, right? He experienced the victory over death and hell. The grave could not hold him. The stone was rolled away and he rose triumphant from the grave. That's good news, right? You and I can't skip to the end. We cannot skip to the end. All this comes as a package. You and I, as individuals and as a church, have to respond to the call to mission. Incarnational mission, international mission. We've got to face the opposition. We've got to fight the battle. We've got to pay the cost. And then, and then, experience the beautiful, Mighty victories that Christ brings. Let's pray together. Father, through the power of your Spirit, now we pray that you would give us boldness as we see in the life of Paul, 
and Barnabas. Boldness that didn't come from deep within them. Boldness that was granted to them by the power of your spirit to obey the call, to stand up to the opposition, to speak the truth of your word, and then to experience the victory that you bring. Lord, this is a work of your spirit. As your truth goes deep into our hearts, so Lord, we look forward to you transforming us as a church in this way. And we look forward to the victories that you'll bring. And Lord, we dread the opposition and we dread the battle. And yet, Lord, we are excited in knowing that you are with us. So we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.